1: Thanks for listening to this
0: Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.
2: Good morning everybody. Now what about my body? My body is mine. It's definitely mine. Three great speakers are going to help us work through this topic about the possession of our body. Anne Phillips who's Professor of Political Science at Lund School of Economics and Professor of Gender Theory at the LSE Gender Institute and she's the author of Our Bodies Whose Property? John Harris here on my left, Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Institute for Science, Ethics and Innovation at the University of Manchester. Throughout his work he's defended what's called a consequentialist approach to ethics, and he's the author of How to Be Good. And on my far left, Brooke Magnanti. Brooke is a scientist, blogger and writer who's best known by her pen name, Belle de Jour. Her books were adapted into the TV programme Secret Diary of a Call Girl. But our first opening question, which is for all of them, but in turn, and starting with Anne, is should we be allowed to do what we like with our bodies?
0: I mean, these are our bodies, and we do have rights over our bodies, particularly uh, rights to bodily integrity. But I don't think that that means that we have the right to do whatever we like with our bodies. And I think uh, one of the things that particularly concerns me is that when we do use this language of ownership and property to capture our relationship to our bodies, it can encourage the kind of the view that we have some kind of absolute authority over our bodies or that all that matters in terms of determining whether particular practices or activities are okay is whether the individuals involved in them have given their consent and that that's not my position and i'm sure we'll we'll roam over a number of examples in the course of our discussion but just briefly to give you two if if i donate my blood it's my blood but i don't have the right to determine who actually gets that blood and i certainly don't have the right to say i want my blood only to go to people who have the same skin color as me so it's my blood but i don't have the kind of the authority to determine that kind of use of it. A second more kind of complicated and probably more controversial example, if, if I suffer from dwarfism and I'm offered a job as the ball in a dwarf-throwing competition, I don't think it's just up to me whether I accept that particular job or whether it's kind of okay. I mean, this is, this is a, a real example and I'm sure it's, it's quite a lot discussed in the literature and I'm sure some of you are, know about it. It comes from a kind of municipality in France where some bright spark came up with the idea of a a dwarf-throwing competition uh, in which strong-armed men would kind of compete with one another to see who could throw the dwarf in question furthest. And the local council banned these events on the grounds that it was an affront to human dignity. Now, the dwarf in question was, in fact, quite indignant. You know, it was his body. He was happy with the deal. You know, there was quite a lot of money attached. Why did anyone else have the right to kind of, you know, to interfere in this and decide that it was an affront to his dignity? And it, you know, he sort of pursued it uh, all the way up to the uh, Supreme Court. Now, I wouldn't argue this in relation of, of uh, to notions of human dignity, which I don't find a particularly illuminating notion in this context. But I do think there's an issue about third parties. I think in that case, if in that case, as seems plausible to me, that the these competitions have the effect of constituting people who suffer from dwarfism as, in a sense, less than people, as things, as objects, as kind of toys to be thrown around. It seems to me that that's a problem, and that the fact that the individuals involved were happy with the arrangement isn't the only consideration. So it seems to me that, you know, of course, we have the rights, lots of rights, to do what we... we Decide over our, with our bodies, but we don't have absolute authority.
2: Thank you. John, what's your take on this question?
0: Well, I don't think very dissimilar, uh, but I'd like to start by saying I
3: don't think this, how, what we can or cannot do with our bodies is a matter of ownership. I think ownership is uh, uh, an, uh, inappropriate in this context. If we can do things to and with our bodies, it is not because we own them, because they're not the sort of things that can be owned. And that, I think, is probably the gist of a lot of what you were saying with which I agree. But let me start in a different place. We, all of us in this room certainly, are particular sorts of creatures, very particular sorts of creatures. Um, That particularity has been defined in many ways as curious creatures, as sort of creatures for whom science is important, um, as uh, rational creatures, as self-conscious creatures. But most importantly, we are the sorts of beings that create ourselves for whom our own lives are an enterprise that we shape to the best of our ability. And this we do, whether self-consciously or not, by the choices that we make, by the decisions that we make. We are constituted by our past choices and our past decisions, and we are the sort of person who wants to make particular sorts of decisions in the future. And that broadly is to say that we are autonomous, that we are choosers, selectors, and for me, our control, insofar as we have it, over our bodies is a function of what is required to respect the sorts of creatures we are and to let us flourish as those sorts of creatures. So that's the, the broad framework within which I'm working. A couple of things more, though, I would like to say um, about that. One is just to remind people that that doesn't, uh, and I agree very much with you, that doesn't mean we can do absolutely anything, that our choices are completely untrammeled, as John Stuart Phil Mill famously said uh, a couple of hundred years ago, uh, Well, I'll I'll give you, actually, roughly his words, but paraphrase them first. My freedom to extend my arm stops somewhere short of your nose. (laughs) And more formally, the, the way it's usually put these days is, every person is entitled to the maximum liberty that is compatible with a like liberty for all. That is to say, every person is to have the maximum freedom of choice, freedom of action, freedom of decision-making, which is compatible with others also enjoying that same liberty, that same autonomy, that same freedom. And I think that, that sort of framework is much more useful for thinking about what we can do to and with our bodies than others. And of course, because we have duties to others, we sometimes have duties to use our bodies for their benefit, including of course by organ donation and in many other ways. And Finally, just to give you a, a, a sense of how, how I, for example, apply this idea in a quite different context, I think it also applies to decisions about the end of our lives, whether we are entitled to end our lives when we choose to do so, and if so why. And I want to illustrate this by just giving you, offering you what I think is, if not a true proposition, it is a proposition that recommends itself to reason, and I am sure it will recommend itself to your powers of reason as well, and that is there is only one thing wrong with dying, and that is doing it when you don't want to. That's the only thing wrong with dying. If you were to be offered a devil's bargain now, yes, you're going to die, but only when you want to and never when you don't. You'd be crazy not, literally crazy not to take that bargain because it doesn't stop you dying, but it gives you a choice. And from that, if that proposition recommends itself to reason, then it follows that doing it when you do want to is not a problem. If the only thing wrong with dying is doing it when you don't want to, then doing it when you you do want to is not a problem. It shouldn't be a legal problem, it shouldn't be an ethical problem, it shouldn't enter into anybody else's decision-making. Because while every man's death may diminish me, my death diminishes no one. Thank Thank you you very much,
2: John. And Brooke, you'll go with that question.
1: I think we can all agree generally that that just the framing uh, and the word ownership is probably... Uh, a very difficult one and probably not a very appropriate one, but we do disagree on some points. Uh, My choice was to do something that society deems unacceptable, which I find morally neutral, or to give up on finishing the science degree that I'd been working towards, and that was unacceptable to me. And there's quite a lot of opposition that you see often when we're talking about you know, the discourse around coercion, where there's vocal opposition to disadvantaged people making d- such decisions because they are assumed to have been coerced. In my experience, this often stems from an unexamined revulsion towards the specific issues that are being discussed, such as disabilities, such as sex work, and that these are often very strongly rooted in religious and status control, but then get framed as, because I would not choose it and I am a reasonable human being, therefore it is not a valid or a good choice. Mm -hmm. To kind of contrast this, you know, we wide, or many people widely accept in this country anyway, the nuance of the arguments surrounding pregnancy terminations and abortion, that we know that in many situations it is a constrained choice, that it is not an ideal choice, but that the ideal of every pregnancy being planned, being wanted and also being viable is something that does not exist and that we shouldn't be punishing people because their lived experiences do not conform to this ideal that doesn't exist. One of the things that bothers me when we talk about coercion is quite how often, not that it necessarily does, but that it often can uh, replicate racism, classism, uh, institutional sexism, xenophobia, and colonialism, but under this umbrella of being concerned about other people's choices, whether they're disadvantaged by where they happen to be born or because of institutionalized racism and sexism, or if they have a condition as brought up by Anne, such as dwarfism. The proof of harm is what especially concerns me, and this is where I'm getting into my material self. As a scientist, I want to see the numbers, and very often when you do see the numbers in these discussions, proof of harm is revealed very quickly to be following cargo cult science. Uh, It's found scientifically wanting and produced by people without a grounding in population statistics, epidemiology, or anything else that would make it scientifically valid. I mean, there are so many decisions, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, from the rather uh, the simple and mundane obesity, body modifications, cosmetic surgery, but also the very private ones such as end-of-life or gender confirmation surgery and family planning and reproduction. We have a problem when governments respond to these kind of public conversations, claiming that there's a demand for policy intervention, and who does that serve? Well, it underlines the desire of status to have control over the one thing we all unambiguously have, which is a body.
2: Thank you very much. Is the rights and the limits of rights over the use of the body for you? What's the sort of bottom line of justification?
0: Well, for me, it's equality. And, and I see, I think, a lot of the uses that people make of the notion of human dignity, when you kind of peel away all the kind of confusions around dignity. I mean, dignity is used in all kinds of very meretricious ways. People, you know, the kind of Catholic Church used to talk about the dignity of labour, the dignity of motherhood, in, in, you know, in ways in which dignity seemed to become this thing which meant that you had to do something that you didn't want to do, but you got dignity for it. So I, I, have, I have a kind of like resistance to the notion of of dignity, though dignified people are absolutely fine, but, but I think the, if, you, if you peel away what people are trying to get at very often when they talk about human dignity, what they're really saying is human beings, it's a relatively new idea, we're supposed to think of hum- all human beings as of equal significance and worth, yeah. and that kind of equality brings with it both certain rights that we all have against kind of arbitrary power and so on. But it also brings with it responsibilities in relation to others. And that there are ways in which some of the ways of, in a sense, using some people for the kind of the amusement of others, it seems to me you can describe that as an affront to human dignity, but I would describe it much more in terms of, of undermining the fundamental equality that we're supposed to right, be. Right, that's to. interesting, because
2: that's an idea almost of yeah. coerced equality. <laughs> Uh, Is that that how you'd see that? What what would you think is the ultimate justificatory thought with respect to the use of your own body?
3: Well, the the normal limiting case is uh, the idea of selling yourself into slavery or indeed (laughs) donating yourself as a slave. And why it's a limiting case is because that is unlike... I mean, all decisions are irrevocable in a certain sense because if you decide to do something at time T, then you can never do some other thing. At time t, so all decisions are irrevocable, and if we were forbidden for making irrevocable decisions, that would be pretty tough on us all. So it's not the irrevocability of selling yourself into slavery or indeed choosing your own death that is the problem; it is preempting your continuing as
2: a particular sort of being, right, the sort I. I mind at the beginning and, and and Brooke you you gave an example of something which I, I'm sure some people will think gets close to that idea of selling yourself into slavery which is uh sex work it's, it's just
1: renting time it's <laughs> right <laughs> time because, because, because to as to where you route. you have
2: you you have time away <laughs> in which you you the slave doesn't have the time away from the condition but if, mm-hmm. if uh do, does it, as it were, during the time, does it have the same status for you as a...
1: Not in my experience, it doesn't. Obviously, there's, I mean, when we talk about sex work, this is an umbrella term for uh, all kinds of work. And, and I think probably in this context, we're referring specifically to full service prostitution, which is what I did. But even in and of itself, this, this covers a wide Variety of activities of which what I did was of a particular kind, but you know, nevertheless, the uh, the fact that there were limited options available to me and to yeah. many other people uh, does not cease to exist simply because people object. But what, to you the idea of, what of do you think of what do you think of John's thought that certain certain
2: hmm? What do you think of John's thought that certain things, for example, selling oneself into slavery, is a kind of limiting case on what one could. I mean,
1: selling oneself into slavery seems to be uh, probably the most extreme case, and far less extreme than sex work in a way, because Uh when we're talking about, you know, what is the thing that we all have and the thing that we all have as a body, that does seem to be, uh, for all of us, the baseline of the thing you cannot give away or trade for something else in in, you know the absolute sense that somebody's absolute ownership of that for people like me whose uh, experience of sex work was relatively benign I saw it mainly as giving a service and that 90% of that service wasn't actually about the sex but about making someone feel a particular way yeah Um, a bit like what people do for free when they go on dates with people they don't intend to see again
2: one one of the things though you did say was that as it were it wasn't just a an ordinary piece of voluntary choosing because of the, the, mm. the considerations w- which you were bringing to bear in yeah. terms of the rest I mean, of your I life. I mean, the
1: other things that I had considered, and again, you know, using myself as an example is probably a very poor way to debate, but I'm going to do it anyway. The other things that I considered were things like uh, selling my ex. I was in my 20s at the time and a very good candidate for doing something like that, which of course in the UK is not legal, but would have been in the United States, where uh, both sides of the transaction in prostitution are illegal.
2: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Do you think, uh, I mean John, maybe you, you listening to this, you, do you think that the sort of argument that Brooks using there is belongs with your self-realization? thought that as it were, there, are, there were limits to self-realization due to economic star- circumstances, which meant that a, a sort of retreat from that project was needed in order to make possible well, I'm not sure
3: that it, it, in the way that Brooke has described it, 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 it necessarily involves a retreat. I don't think uh, right. it seems to have involved any sort of retreat for you. It was a decision which, under other circumstances, you might not have taken. but.
1: But so would being a genetic but so, but epidemiologist. So Exactly.
3: So, would, uh-huh, you know, for yes. me, talking here, we all,
2: we all do all sorts of things which are not totally optimal. I think, Anne, you, your position is, in a certain way, the least individualistic, as it were, mm-hmm, in the probably, sense that yes, you, have yeah. to, you have to see something beyond the individual mm-hmm. to make sense of these, mm-hmm. these rights. Do you regard that as in some way, a way of protecting people from themselves, from their desires? Mm, what, mm, what's the yeah. relationship there between the...
0: Yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the discussion gets kind of mis- misdirected because people think that what's at issue is either individuals have the right to decide or we have a paternalistic kind of intervention, which is protecting individuals from the harm that they may do themselves. I'm actually... There are lots of bits of paternalism that I don't object to. I don't object to being made to kind of wear a seatbelt in a car. I, I don't think addictive drugs should be available in the supermarket. you know. So there are bits of paternalism I have no problem with. But but generally the issue for me is not about paternalism. Right. It's, a, it's about, as I say, it's much more about third parties. It's about the way in which our individual actions and individual choices are part of a whole set of social practices which can sustain and reproduce unequal relations. I mean, if you do anything about kind of... Thinking about sort of gender relations, uh, sort of power relations between between the sexes, it's clear that there are all kinds of social practices that we all participate in, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, which are part of what reproduce those kinds of inequalities. Similarly with racism, and it seems to me that the that, that those are the kind of concerns that trouble me, N- the ways in which an overly, I mean individualism again, like paternalism, isn't all bad, individualism isn't all bad, lots of ways in which we all want to have the right to decide for ourselves, but if you make it just a matter of all that matters is what, what the individuals are choosing, you, you fail to take on board the, sort of the sense in which the social practices that we engage in have all kinds of ripple effects for the other people in our society. So it's that. It's not the paternalism. It's not the protecting individuals from the harm they may do themselves, though in certain instances, as I say, I don't mind a bit of paternalism.
1: When discussing uh, you know, the failure of the war on drugs and whether particular sh- drugs should be decriminalised, and then once decriminalised, in what form will they then be legally available? Yes. Right. Because, of course, decriminalisation is not ever an end point with any of these issues. We then have to think about is it available on the
0: supermarket shelves? Is it available on the supermarket shelves or or do you go into a
1: clinic? How is it administered? Uh, Who's in charge of quality control? Exactly.
2: When we talk about possession in the case of one's own body, in a general way, it's not this contingent possession where it just happens to be mine and could be somebody else's, like, Mm -hmm. like my pen. And I think, John, at the, at the beginning you said you were unsure whether you thought we should talk about possession in the case of the body. Uh, what, what would be a, a, I mean, we can't really stop saying my, I don't think, my body. Is that. So is it, as it were, how are we to understand that as something other than possession?
3: Possession isn't the only <laughs> linguistic relationship we can have with something to make it meaningful. So, uh, in, in a way, I don't see your problem. We, if something radical happens... To, to my body. It may be profoundly different than it is now in in ways that will also make my life profoundly different. So I had one sort of body and now I have another sort of body and so on. They're both still mine in a sense, not in the ownership necessarily or possessive sense. A lot of people actually want to alienate themselves from their body because they don't like the body yeah that they have so i think there are all sorts of if you like relationships one can have with one's own body
2: in the case of the of bodily self transformation one would still think there's a difference between what i might want to do to my own body and any rights i might have to do that to somebody else and how, how for you does that idea of uh, as it were the freedom that you want to give the person in projects of self-realization and the way that will bring their own body in
3: why should it stop there <laughs> well, largely, because if it didn't, you wouldn't like the consequences, which is, of course, the deterrence theory, uh, But if you get rid on of a of, personal you,
2: level. If you get rid of ideas of possession, yeah. and a very special sense of possession with respect to your mm-hmm. own body, then how, how can you get leverage on the idea of me well, not liking it? Or
3: well, you have, I think, in, in some extreme cases, you have to take a view about whether what happens to the body is a good thing or a bad thing? And if it's a bad thing, how bad a thing it is? We have debates like this, in, in, interestingly, in disability studies mm. where people want, they have a particular disability, they want their children to share that disability because it, for them it is a part of a particular mm. community. And sometimes we have to, we society have to take a view about whether it would be permissible to, if, if I I'm deaf, and I want my child to be deaf. If it happens not to be going to be deaf, am I entitled to definite? Right. And so on, and that would go for all sorts of bodily manipulations as well. But they are very difficult decisions, and might well have to be taken on a case by case basis with a very elaborate argument about the consequences of permitting or denying a particular community to self-identify with how their bodies are, and so on.
2: And if we could put this back to you, that we had uh, the idea. Uh, of equality rather than self-possession being at the forefront of your thinking about bodily integrity and so on. Does the idea of equality for you shift us away from thinking about the body as some kind of possession or does it treat it as it were just as any other possession? What's, how does the body figure? Yeah, yeah, no, it, I mean, it,
0: it, no it does shift it away. I mean I think, I think there's a lot of confusions we get into as, as John indicates with the use of the word my. Yeah. I mean you know a, a, you know, when I say my son is my son, I certainly don't mean he's my property and that I can do what I like right, with him. Right. And in fact, I count myself lucky You're if he ever takes any advice from me. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. Not a, certainly not a kind of like a control or a, a, no. an ownership. So partly the word my... I mean, obviously, my body is mine. And, and I do think that carries certain implications. And I think that there is something about the way in which we inhabit our bodies. I mean, I think it's a mistake... that that people sometimes fall into to think of the kind of the body as this housing (laughs) of the real me which is what kind of mind soul I don't know what you know the we live in the world through our bodies we engage with people through our bodies if we change our bodies we change the way we relate to people so so there is something about the sense in which we inhabit our bodies. We yeah. are our bodies. We're in se- Although the non-contingent. Yes. No. As so you then say. there's an interesting yeah.
2: problem there that, yeah. that comes in with the amputee, uh, yes, the the, yes, um, yes, yes. the prosthetic, and so yeah. on. I mean, uh, that inhabitation uh, seems both non-contingent, as it were, the in- yes, unless yeah. unless you want yeah. to invoke an idea of an immaterial yeah. soul yeah. or something, and and yet. There seem to be contingencies in there, too. Uh, they're, they're, an interesting one that came up recently was about head transplants. Yes. Uh, yeah. So you, the one way of putting it is so you keep your body, but we're going to change your head. Right. Yeah. But it, it, <laughs> that sounds more like a body transplant, as yeah, it were, because yeah, we yeah. like to think of ourselves as seated somewhere up here rather than. Well, we uh, do. Right? We
0: do have experience of facial transplants and of hand transplants and. And indeed, peop- people do report that they find they find this quite troubling, right? Because there is a sense in which, with somebody else, what seems like somebody else's hands or somebody else's face, there there is a sense in which people don't quite don't quite know who they are anymore. Right. So we do have all kinds of attachments to our body, which I think I think the kind of the amputation doesn't sufficiently capture that 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 make it, very, you know, make it very hard for us to make this clear separation between me, yeah. me and my body. I mean, if I, if I kind of try to imagine who I would be if I'd been born with a black skin rather than a white one, um, it, it's a different me, right? right? It's a different kind of world. It's a different way of relating to people, a different way of people pigeonholing me. So there, there is that, possession definitely doesn't capture
2: it. Okay, <laughs> we've run out of time. We should thank Anne, John and Brooke very much for their contributions. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.